Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. It's one of the pleasures as researchers that we sometimes can connect to the, uh, to the public and connect to people in Canberra. And I think this is one of these events. And, uh, and it's the first one, so it's a bit of a trial. We don't know how it will work, but it, we all hope it will be uh, a very memorable event and you will uh, remember it fondly um, because it gave rise to nice discussions and, and we have a good time here this afternoon. Um, so the idea is that we have actually a panel of four speakers from our school, the Research School of Biology, um, and they will each give a short presentation. We don't want to uh, overextend your attention span. Apparently these days students only have an attention span of 10 minutes, but most of you are a bit more mature, so, um, so we have about presentations of about 8 to 10 minutes each, uh, four of them, and then after that we have a panel discussion um, that will include all the talks, so we thought this format would perhaps work better than having discussions after each individual presentation. Al although if you have something very urgent, um, you probably can also uh, interrupt briefly and, and ask a question then, but I think by and large we would like to have sort of a panel discussion at the end of the presentations. So I would like briefly like to... Um, have I actually introduced myself? I don't think so. Yeah. I wrote a note on my notes there, introduce myself, because I tend to forget that. So I am Stefan Breuer. I'm the uh, deputy director of the Research School of Biology and <coughs> Outreach and Communication is one of the things sort of I'm looking after. So um, this is why we're doing this event. So now I've done my introduction. <laughs> now I can, after that, I now I can introduce our panel. Um, so our speakers are Dr. Marcel Cadillo from our school. Um, and we have Professor Craig Moritz from the, from the school and also head of the Center of Biodiversity Analysis. We have Dr. Carsten Kuhlheim, uh, who is a postdoctoral fellow here in the school, and Professor Adrian Nikotra, also from the school. And they will all talk about their own research, their own view on biodiversity. And this is sort of the topic we have today, biodiversity, its past present and future. Apologies, it's not really a question, but then the future is always a bit uncertain, so there's your question mark there. <laughs> um, and we also have someone to moderate the discussion, that is Rod Lamberts from the Center of Public Awareness of Science, and he will sort of steer the discussion, and hopefully we get a lively discussion going at the end of the event. Uh, and at the end of the event, um, we actually have some drinks and light refreshments out there in the foyer, uh, of the Robertson Building. So for that, if you want to stay on and have more questions and want to chat over a, a drink or two, then you just enter through the back door there um, and downstairs you will have some refreshments after the event. But only after the event. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think I've covered my introduction and I don't want to overdo it because um, we don't want to stretch the time unnecessarily. And then I would like to hand over to our first speaker, Marcel, for his presentation. Okay, 
First thing I need to work out is actually which button I press to advance <laughs> that. Yeah, you can either use the slide changer or very conservative. Okay, thank you. Um, the good old keyboard. I've passed the first test. Um, thanks for coming along, everyone. Um, I just want to give a small advance warning that um, my talk is almost entirely questions. There's not many answers, but hopefully you can cope with that. Um, if you if you look at the the two ecosystems I've pictured on the screen here, um, and if I asked you to sort of nominate which one of those you would expect to have higher biodiversity, um, I'm imagining that I mean I could get a show of hands, but in the interest of time, I'm imagining that most of you will point to this one, the sort of lush, you know, tropical-looking forest environment, rather than this more dry, um, you know, heathy, shrubby sort of ecosystem. And, you know, most of us associate the tropics and tropical rainforests in particular with high biodiversity. And there's very good reason for that. We can look at some facts and figures. So, you know, places like uh, Yasuni National Park in Ecuador, almost on the equator, have absolutely staggering counts of species. Um, you know, a thousand tree species from the one national park. You know, 600 birds, 200 mammals. And if you compare that to a much larger region at a high latitude, you know, for example, the whole of England, um, you can see that you know, the numbers of species up there are much, much lower. And it's not really hard to understand why. The obvious difference between these two places is climate. Ecuador is hot, wet, humid all year round, and that gives rise to this luxuriant, sort of you know, rampant forest growth um, with you know, really sort of structurally complex forests providing habitats for lots of different species. Finland is much colder for a lot of the year, the growing season is very short, and so the forests are much more structurally simple. So it seems you know, sort of intuitively obvious that climate is the driving force, the ultimate driving force of biodiversity. So you know, if that's the case, then can we predict the biodiversity of different parts of the world based on climate or other aspects of the environment? Well, let's have a look at a few more patterns. <coughs> Um, if we look at the number of tree species in temperate forests in different parts of the world, uh, you can see in on the western seaboard of North America, you've got places like the Olympic Peninsula, Redwood National Park with you know, 25 to 35 different species of trees. And then if you look on the other side of the world in China, in forests at the same latitude, very similar climate, structurally very similar sort of vegetation, the number of species is you know, almost 10 times greater. So that's, that's not what you expect to see if climate and contemporary environment is the primary thing that determines diversity. So if we, if we delve into this a bit further, we can see that the broader region uh, of which these different places are a part you know, also <coughs> differ massively in diversity. There are 10 times more tree species in East Asia compared to North America. So what's going on there? Well, the answer is probably that diversity is not just a product of contemporary environment. Diversity also has a history. It's also a product of history. And if we want to understand diversity, we need to try to understand that history. So, you know, it, it's, it's possible that this kind of pattern results from the history of glacial cycles over the past few million years. North America is much more severely affected by glaciation. Um, over the past few million years compared to East Asia, and so the, the flora there has had to repeatedly re-establish um, again and again. 
And so diversity is not just the contemporary environment, it's also history. Now I just want to complicate the picture a little bit further and show you some more patterns. Um, if we look at the, the pattern of plant species diversity around the world, the, the, you know, the big hot spots of diversity are the places in blue and red. They mostly turn up in the tropics. But there's a couple of places I want to highlight that are well outside of the tropics. Um, and these are certainly not places of high rainfall and luxuriant forest growth for the most part. And in fact, in both of these places, the most diverse ecosystems are these dry heathlands known as the Fynbos in South Africa, the Kwangan in southwestern Australia. And these are, you know, they don't have any of the characteristics we normally associate with, with high biodiversity, but these are some of the most botanically rich places on the planet. And if we look at places around the world with a similar Mediterranean type climate, you know, with hot, dry summers, cool, moist winters, we find that they usually stand out as hotspots of botanical diversity. Um, and so the existence of these Mediterranean climate diversity hotspots is, is actually still a real mystery. We really don't know what the answer is that, that explains this phenomenon. So in my lab here at uh, in RSB, we've been exploring the diversity of Australia's southwest, um, and in particular, we're using the plant family <coughs> Proteaceae as a, uh, a case study. So this includes some of the you know, the really well-known Australian plant genera like Banksias and Grevilleas and Hakeias. So if we if we turn our attention to Banksia, uh, you can see that the group is distributed sort of you know pretty much uh, <coughs> pretty much around the coastal margins of Australia but the greatest diversity is in this southwestern corner and in fact there's a, a really strong disparity in diversity between east and west in banks here. 90% of the species are found in that southwestern corner so you know if we can understand why banks here are so diverse in that one corner of Australia then maybe we can you know go some way to understanding why the southwest is a hot spot of botanical diversity more generally. Um, so the question is why? Well, you know, we can we can think about contemporary <coughs> ecological conditions, environmental conditions, but we can also think about the history of Banksia and how that might account for some of the patterns that we see. So, for example, we can ask questions like this. Maybe the group has you know, quite simply been there for longer. It's been in the southwest for longer, so it's just had a longer period of time in which to accumulate diversity. Uh, another sort of fairly intriguing alternative is that maybe the actual pace of evolutionary diversification has been faster in the southwest for some reason or another. Um, and so to, to answer questions like this, we need to try and reconstruct the evolutionary history of the group. So how do we do that? Well, the way we do that is by taking the DNA from living species and comparing the DNA of different species to reconstruct the evolutionary history, the evolutionary tree of the group. And so this is the, the evolutionary tree or the phylogeny as we usually refer to it for the, the Banksia group. Um, so on the, the right, all of the, the tips of this tree represent living Banksia species. The, the lines connect species that are most closely related to one another and so on back through the tree, back through time, 
until we arrive at the what we infer to be the common ancestor um, of the, the entire group about 42 million years ago. And there's all sorts of things that we can ask when we have this particular tool, this evolutionary tree. So for example, we can look at where the present day southwestern species fall in the tree, we can look at where the present day eastern species fall, and they, they turn out to be in these two groups, the very tiny one down here, of close relatives that at some point in history of the group broke away from the southwest and managed to disperse to eastern Australia and give rise to descendant species that are still there today. And so based on this kind of evidence, it certainly does seem to be the case that Banksia have been present in the southwest for much longer and they've had a longer period of time in which to accumulate diversity. Um, now, we can also test this second scenario using the phylogenetic tree, and in this case it turns out that it, it actually doesn't look like there's evidence that the pace of diversification is any higher in the southwest. And so this, this you know, is a starting point towards um, answering the sort of historical question that might provide the explanation for the way Banksia diversity is distributed. So it leads to some other um, interesting and important questions too. So Banksia have been there in the southwest for such a long period of time, <coughs> at least 40 million years. Why is it on only two occasions that they have managed to escape and expand into eastern Australia? Well, one possible reason is that southwest species seem to be highly specialised ecologically. So they're often restricted to a very narrow set of ecological conditions. They, you know, they seem to be very finicky about soil types in particular, and so that may have constrained their ability to break out and adapt to different environments elsewhere. It also means that a lot of Banksia species in the southwest are restricted to very small geographic distributions. Some species are known only from one population on a particular slope of a particular mountain. And so I'll, I'll just leave you with the thought that Maybe this has implications for the ability of species to adapt and migrate in the face of climate change. And the predictions for southwestern Australia are declining winter rainfall, increasing the frequency and the, the length of droughts, all kinds of things. Um, and so this is the, the sort of thing that Carsten and Adrienne will be talking about a bit more. So with that uh, sort of somewhat sobering thought, I'll leave it there. I'll thank all of those who were involved in this work. And thanks very much for all of you. Well, welcome everyone, and thank you for coming out on this balmy Canberra evening. Uh, my name's Craig Moritz, as um, Stefan said. Can you hear me okay without using the microphone? Yep, good, excellent. Um, now, like most academics, I'm technologically disabled. There you go. Not as bad as I thought. So I'm going to tell you a story about Northern Australia <coughs> and about biodiversity discovery. <coughs> so the discovery angle is sort of getting the nuts and bolts right for the sort of very beautiful types of analyses that Marcel was just explaining to you. We, we call them the, the, the Linnaean and Wallacean and Darwinian shortfall. The Linnaean shortfall is uh, lack of information on 
what species exist. The Wallacean shortfall after Wallace is where do they exist? And the Darwinian shortfall is how are they related to each other? And this is really the, the, the stuff of biodiversity science. And then trying to figure out how all that works. So why the tropics? Well, Canberra's cold in winter. The tropics <laughs> is bloody beautiful. <coughs> my wife doesn't get, I've just come back, my wife gets a bit grumpy when I disappear for weeks on end. On end. But the other thing, it's really a frontier for discovery. The, the, the biodiversity of, South, of southern Australia is pretty well understood. Uh, centuries of, of detailed work from systemists and taxonomists. The north is, is really frontier stuff. And of course it's the tropics. And Marcel has already told you that we expect to have high diversity in the tropics. Now the north, northern Australian savannah is a really special place because it's renowned as the world's largest sort of ecologically intact tropical savannah. It's a vast area, two and a half thousand kilometers across, you know, five to eight hundred kilometers north to south. Um, and it is structured. Uh, when we call these things mountains to a North American, they just burst out laughing. <laughs> the highest hills are maybe you know, 800 metres, 1,000 metres. But they do dissect the landscape. So you have these sort of old, very old sandstone systems separated by floodplains and so forth, um, and dry corridors like the Carpentarian Gap in the Gulf to sort of structure the biological diversity across the area. And they are really beautiful landscapes. The other reason I'm fascinated for working and discovering the biodiversity in northern Australia is much of the land, more than 40%, is under some form of indigenous control. And the indigenous areas are amongst the least known, bi uh, biologically, least known areas in, in Australia. Because scientists largely haven't worked there. They've gone to Kakadu, they've gone to, to Darwin, to Litchfield. Um, they haven't established the collaborations that are necessary with indigenous communities to do the sort of two-way science that's needed to really understand what's with the traditional owners, what's on their land. And I'm going to come back to the importance of the indigenous management uh, repeatedly as I go along. But note this slide, this is the map, and this one, this is the map of indigenous protected areas. How many of you have heard of IPAs, indigenous protected areas? A few. The more than 44% 44, 44 of Australia's national reserve system, the areas that are voluntarily declared as being managed for biological and cultural diversity by the traditional owners, having obtained native title. So it's a voluntary thing they put in. They're, they're multiple-use landscapes, but one of the major objectives is to maintain the biological diversity and the cultural diversity of those landscapes, often using some blend of Western science and traditional approach. And they have enormous value for society. But they're not well known in the public. <clears throat> it's also a very exciting time to be a biodiversity scientist because we've got this whole raft of new tools to play with. Our work is founded on field work and collections in our, our wonderful museums across Australia, including those across the road in TSIO Road. But now we can add to these uh, highly advanced informatics, and Australia is a global leader in this, the Atlas of Living Australia and the things that came before it, provide online access to uh, point data for species, intersecting that with the types of environments they're occurring. Uh, we can now intersect that with phylogenetic information, what Marcel was just telling you about, where we can see species and distributions in the context of the tree of life. It's, it's 
I, I always give my kids and my wife a hard time when they play video games because I think it's a waste of time. I could spend a whole weekend on some combination of Google Earth and the Atlas of Living Australia. It's just so much fun. <laughs> or maybe I'm just a geek. <laughs> so, and then, you know, given this information, now we, we overlay this with genomics. Genomics used to be the stuff of modern species humans, mouse, Arabidopsis, Drosophila, nematodes. Now we can do genomes or partial genome information on any species on the planet. And it's a revolution. Then you combine this with lovely inference methods like Marcel was just explaining to you, and you can go from pattern to process. But the first part is to get the pattern. So what are we finding? I get together with my students and colleagues, and we get in our four-wheel drive, and we drive all over northern Australia and collect this stuff. Uh, mostly widespread species, things that are regarded as one species by the taxonomists, and they've done their job well, working with morphology. But when you look at these species genomically, we discover they're not one thing. They may be many things that aren't even each other's closest relatives. So this is one example of many. This little brown spotted gecko. Gaharanana, this is the information of Atlas of Living Australia. Some points are plain wrong, here's multiple mycops from years ago. Um, but these populations over in Queensland, if you look at the phylogeny, this is all species of Gahara. Each tip is, is one taxon. Here's, ooh, something's gone wrong here. Here's, here's that Queensland population. It's nothing to do with Gaharanana, which is mostly here. We call that convergence. It's the repeated evolution of the same morphology. There's even little brown geckos living on brown spotty rocks and they usually brown spotty. <laughs> but taxonomists have put them together. The same thing with this thing in Cape York, the same with this thing around Mount Isa. So Gaharanana really exists in this area, but it's not one thing. It's five, maybe six different species that aren't each other's closest relatives. There are other named species that sit in the middle of that, of that group. So clearly we need to revise the then there's an ongoing dialogue as these new tools of genomics are getting combined with traditional uh, measurements of phenotypes as to what constitutes a species, when you name it, how we name it. But from this and many others we've studied, we estimate that we've underestimated the species diversity of northern Australia in these low dispersal animals, maybe three to fivefold. That is, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg of the true diversity in the north. Sometimes this new diversity is geographically clustered. <coughs> so that we discover new hotspots of diversity. Marcel was just telling you about southwest Australia and other Mediterranean hotspots. Um, you think of Kakadu as a hotspot of diversity, and indeed it is. But we're finding new areas that are often on traditionally owned and managed lands. So this is one in the, south, in the southern Kimberley. It's the Kimberley here. Down in the southwest, just getting into the desert, below the big sandstone systems, the little set of limestone ranges. They're quite unremarkable. You can drive past them and, and not even really notice them. Just little piles of limestone like this sitting in the Pindan, at the edge of the Pindan Forest. Here's the sandstones. And species after species, we're finding that the things there are not what we think they are. They're new species. That have been isolated perhaps for millions of years from their relatives further north in the more mesic areas. That suggests this area has been a refuge for these species through long periods of past climate change. Sisters there in these limestones, these limestones provide water. Interestingly, there's also evidence for human occupation of these areas through climatically severe periods of the last 20,000 years. So there's something special about these places, and this is an entirely Aboriginal owned and managed 
area. <clears throat> so we can put together now these nice maps of evolutionary uniqueness, combining the spatial data and the phylogenetic data to identify these new biodiversity hotspots. So as I said, some are ones we know, Kakadu, Gairandana, the Northwest Kimberley, which comes up as having extreme levels of unique diversity, particularly the islands, which are also now the focus for conservation efforts in relation to the expansion of cane groves. But I'm particularly struck by the opportunity to work with the indigenous communities through here. I've just come back from China Wall down here. Lawn Hill National Park a bit further east is very well studied. It's a well-resourced national park, relatively. The area west of that is a, it's a, it's a rocky extension coming down from the Gulf here. It had never been surveyed by them. We had the opportunity to go in there when they were launching their IPA and work with the community there and do this two-way science thing. I've just come back from here. These islands off northeast island land quite unexpectedly are another one of these novel hotspots of diversity. They're entirely within an indigenous managed area. And so on across these areas. One of the one I just talked to you about in these southern limestones. So my proposition here is that we're finding new species of vertebrates hand over fist in northern Australia. We vastly underestimate the true diversity of the place. Much of it is indigenous managed, and that indigenous management is not some sort of welfare work for the gold thing. It's really providing a national service. They're doing the ecological management to sustain Australia's biodiversity through this uh, IPA program. And it's, it's, it's just an amazing pleasure to work with the TOs. This is Iris, who was sitting down just talking to her about what she knew about the animals. She told us things we didn't know. She showed her animals she'd never seen. It's just some, a terrific dialogue. And getting out with the young kids, showing them how to, how to do the science and learning from them. In passing, if I just want to throw a red flag out there, well, it is red, so that's convenient. This, the federal government's recent white paper on developing north says nothing about IPA. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's outrageous. And perhaps I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, um, Craig. Um, so my name is Carsten Kuhlheim. I'm also at the Research School of Biology. And today I'm going to talk about eucalyptus and why I think that uh, eucalypts are Australia's resource for the future. So I'm going to go um, moving from present to past here. And uh, with an increase in global surface temperature, as all of you uh, know about, there will be uh, species migrating towards the poles. Now, not as much as I'm showing on this graph here, but um, a little bit. They'll also increase in elevation, so they're moving up mountain ranges, and Adrian will talk a little bit about that later. So we're working with eucalypts, so we, we've investigated all roughly 700 species of eucalypts and looked at the current climatic envelope that they live in. So we look at the geographic and climatic environment they have, and then we look 70 years into the future. And in 70 years, we, we look where is that climatic area? we find that the majority of the species, of course, would be moving around or um, moving south, moving up in elevation, as I said. However, I can't, cannot show you any of the data because this uh, data set was recently accepted and is currently 
uh, being made ready for publication and under a media embargo. So um, I just draw uh, a schematic here. <laughs> so we've got species moving south, species moving up into the mountains, um, and unfortunately I have to leave it um, at that with it. But there's consequences for this. So um, plants that are locally adapted today may not be in the future, and we have to think about that. It's important for reforestation. If we, if we plant trees now that we're expecting to live for 100 or 200 years, they might not survive that long. So that's why we have to think about that. It's important for forestry industry. What tree, if you have a um, rotation time of 25 years, what tree will survive these 25 years? Um, some of the forestation I work with, they're malleys. They can be harvested for up to 100 years. You really need to plan uh, for the climate space that you have 100 years from now. And even if you're plan, uh, planning to plant a eucalyptus in your garden, you might want to think about what kind of uh, species you're planting. Um, so eucalypts are often foundation species in an ecosystem. So the phenotype, the makeup of that eucalyptus tree is important for the environment. Um, the nutritional value of the leaves, the chemicals in the leaves influence the um, community so it depends on, like the chemistry in the leaf will determine whether a possum or a koala can feed on the eucalypt or not, uh, different insects, all the way um, to beetles and fungi. So if we think about the um, eucalyptus species moving away from one area to another, what, what do the, um, the other parts of the ecosystem do? Do they follow? Do they get extinct? Do they find new uh, food sources? So these are all things we should think about right now um, as, the, as the climate is changing. So um, most eucalyptus species uh, call Australia home. That might, you might know that they are endemic to Australia. There's about 700 species. Um, there's a few in Papua New Guinea, but the majority occurs in Australia. Um, however, eucalyptus is also the most planted tree in the world. So if you look at this figure down here, there's 20 million hectares of um, plantation of eucalypts worldwide. And that is data from 2008. Since then, it has increased a fair bit. So you can look at the map and you wonder a few things. For example, why has Australia only 875,000 hectares? And why is there so much in, in um, Southeast Asia and in the Americas? So we get a lot of questions. Like Marcel was saying, we, we're getting more questions than answers. So it's like, why? <laughs> So for the plantations outside of Australia, um, the reasons for it is, first of all, they're really fast-growing trees. Um, the quality of the wood is quite good, um, so they are useful. And third, uh, because they evolved here in Australia and not overseas, there are almost no pests or pathogens that can feed on the eucalypts. That's why they grow so well out of Australia. So reversely, we can ask, why do we not grow more eucalypts ourselves in Australia? Well, the pests and pathogens again, they co-evolved here. We know that koalas and possums outside of your garden, of course, eat eucalyptus leaves. Um, also, Australia likes to, use, uh, likes to cut down old growth forest rather than using plantations. And some of the products from eucalypts, such as eucalyptus oil, are currently niche markets in Australia. So, however, Australia has some really good um, advantages compared to the rest of the world. So, 
all of this, um, the plantations that I showed you on that map of the world is, is mostly 12 species, a dozen species that are grown around the world. We have 700 species in Australia, so there's a lot of untouched ground, so we should really look at which species can be used for what kind of uh, product. We also have a lot of within-species diversity. A lot of the uh, Brazilian, South African, Chinese um, plantations, they are based on very few individuals, so they don't have diversity within a species. We have that here in Australia. And one of these diversities that I'm working on myself is the diversity of chemicals inside the leaves, the essential oils. So there's huge variation within species of eucalyptus. The eucalyptus oil can vary 10 to 30-fold within the same species between plants. It can be more than 10% of the dry matter of the leaf can be eucalyptus oil. So how does it look like? We have a, if we look at a random population of 500 trees of one species, we can, uh, we'll have a few individuals that have very little eucalyptus oil, between 0 and 1% of dry leaf matter, and we've got a few that have very high eucalyptus oil and a lot of trees in between. We can make use of that. Not only do we have this quantitative variation, so plants that have a lot of oil, plants that have very little oil, there's also a, very lot, of, uh, a lot of qualitative variation. There are thousands of chemical structures in eucalyptus oil, um, and some of these look like that, and you might, you all have smelled this one here before, that is eucalyptol. So that is the main component in eucalyptus oil um, that you um, all have smelled when you, when you smell a eucalypt leaf. Right, so why are we interested in this? Why is this important? Well, um, apart from forestry products, um, we, we can use these um, essential oils, these eucalyptus oils, for future products. For example, graphene. Graphene is a one, basically a one-dimensional diamond. It's a carbon structure that is a single atom layer thick. It is one one hundred millionth of a millimeter thick, but it's, it is 200 times stronger than the strongest steel. Um, if you have a square meter of graphene, you, this square meter can hold the weight of a house cat, but weighs less than a whisker of that cat. That's how strong graphene is. <laughs> the research on the physical properties of graphene led to the 2010 Nobel Prize in Physics. And it, so it's a fairly recent um, time. It has been known for a longer time, but it's only recently uh, come to commercial production and commercial uses. Since we can use some components from eucalyptus oil to make that, there's one future use of eucalyptus oil. The other one is you can't fly um, airplanes with uh, biodiesel or bioethanol. However, this guy, um, alpha pinene, which is a main component in eucalyptus oil, can be converted into something that is, has such a high level of energy that you can fly jets with it. So we can grow eucalypts and we can fly planes with that in the future, and you can't do that with uh, other biofuels. So that's basically all the information I wanted to um, leave you with and think that just leave you the message that eucalypts can be used far beyond of what they have been so far and that we can maybe start planning to plant some and put them in the right place. So with that, I would like to thank you and for to, just to show you some growth, this is uh, in Brazil. These are five and a half year old eucalyptus grandis uh, trees. So they grow pretty fast. Thank you very much.
And your next step or your next stop on our um, whirlwind tour of Australia is the Alps. Um, so what I'm going to talk to you about draws on a lot of the ideas that have been raised so far. And, and um, like Karsten, I want us to be thinking towards the future. Um, I know for many people, when they think about the Alps, this is what they think of. And when they think about diversity, um, they think about numbers of runs that are open and how good they are. Um, but beneath the surface, um, there's a lot going on up here. And the picture that I want to paint for you is, is not only about numbers of species and the biological intrigue of this area, which is huge, but the complexity of the social landscape that we're working in. So Australia's alpine is quite iconic in many ways. It's, it's culturally iconic. Um, it's important to the, the history of, of European Australians and indigenous Australians um, from a very broad area have been using the Alps for a long time. In more recent years, it's become important for, for skiing and for other leisure activities. It's also economically hugely important. So it's estimated that nearly 10,000 gigaliters of water come out of the Alps, which supports something like 45% of the irrigated production of Australia. And that's remarkable given that we're talking about less than 0.5% of Australia's land area. So on top of those values, there are the biological values themselves. Now, what's interesting about uh, the Alps is that it is an area that has had very active and very forward-thinking approaches to conservation and management for several generations. Um, it is a, a UNESCO World Biosphere Reserve, and it is a listed national heritage bioregion. And in part, this is because it is another of these biodiversity hotspots. Now, these species numbers need to be taken in context of the land area that we're talking about. We don't have the thousands of plant species that Marcel was talking about, but we've got a very small land area. So there are about 300 plant species in the Australian Alps, many of which are endemic. There are about 40 mammal species, a couple hundred bird species, reptiles, amphibians, some really funky fish, and some really gorgeous invertebrates. And they all are living um, perched here on the top of these short little mountains. Um, Australian mountains are very old, and they're not very pointy. And they've got a lot of soil compared to many other mountains. And this makes them biologically remarkable places. And, and alpine biologists from around the world come to Australia to understand how our alpine species function. And in many ways, they're convergent upon alpine environments and alpine species elsewhere in the world. Um, one of the things that's particularly interesting about them, though, is that in addition to surviving extreme low temperatures in winter, they actually get quite warm in summer. And so the breadth of temperatures that these things have to be able to tolerate ecologically, behaviorally, and physiologically is quite wide. Now, as we've spoken about earlier in the evening, um, 
the climate is now changing, and it's changing quite rapidly. So these, these organisms have evolved over a long period of time um, and have specialized on a very particular sort of environment. And so the question that we're faced with is trying to understand what's going to happen up there in 20, 50, or 100 years. Already there's evidence that both native um, species are, are shifting into the Alps, and also exotic species are, are more frequently colonizing our alpine environments. We've recorded about a 0.7 degree increase in mean temperature, which might not sound like very much, but with that come big changes in the minimum and the maximum temperatures that organisms are uh, exposed to. And most strikingly, changes in the duration um, and depth of snow are being recorded. So what you're looking at here, if I can make this work, um, are outputs of some simulation maps, some simulation models mapping snow depth on the environment um, in 2001, 2020, and 2050 to project how much snow we're likely to have in the future. And just to place you, that's the ACT, and that's the New South Wales-Victoria border. And what you can see is that the projection is that by 2050, the area under snow is going to be much, much smaller than it was even in 2001. So here's the real data that went into those sorts of models. What you can see over here is the snow depth measured at the Spencer's Creek measurement station over the past 50 years. And snow depth is highly variable. Anyone who skis knows that. But what you'll notice is that there is this downward trend. So there is a reduction on average in snow depth um, at that point and more generally. As snow declines and the world gets warmer and drier, fire frequency is increasing and the intensity of those fires is increasing. And I said before, these things, the plants and animals that live here tend to be adapted to, to temperature extremes and to snow, not terribly able to withstand frequent fires. Occasional fires, sure. But as fires become more frequent, we have to wonder how are these plants and animals going to cope? What's interesting to think about here is that lots of things are changing at once. Temperatures are changing, precipitation regimes are changing, fire frequencies are changing, and the impact that humans are having on this environment is also changing. And so it's easy to get bogged down and say, everything's changing so fast. It's all doom and gloom. Will we be able to recognize the Alps in 50 years, or should I get up there and do my skiing and bushwalking now, because it's not going to be there in the future? Well, I'm an optimist, and I think that's a fairly extreme perspective to take. I think it's really important for us to understand the biology of the organisms that live there and how they got to be the way they are so that we can better predict how they're going to respond in the future. One of the things that's interesting about our Alps is that, as I said before, they are the site of many generations of very innovative approaches to restoration and management. What you're looking at here is pictures of um, wetlands and woodlands before uh, the snowy scheme opened and the cows were removed and in the decades after. And this demonstrates what it's possible to do if you 
have um, innovative management approaches that are informed by good science. You can basically bring things back to um, prior states. The challenge we have now, though, is that prior states aren't necessarily going to be relevant in 50 or 100 years. So we need to have that same sort of flexibility in thinking about how we manage these environments, but we need to think ahead towards multiple possible outcomes. Um, and so what's happening in the Alps at present is really quite exciting, and, and that is that managers, policymakers, and researchers who, who work in these environments and, and care a lot for them are really getting together and thinking about what are the possible future scenarios facing these environments? Which species are most likely to be affected by these changes, and what do we need to know about their biology to protect some um, either in situ or ex situ, or to facilitate movement of things um, so that we protect the diverse values of these sites. And so it becomes really important to think back to that multiple use, multiple value perspective. Um, so uh, should you get rid of your skis? Not just yet. Um, in fact, I, I don't know if you know this, but, but ski use and ski purchases continue to go up every year, so I'm not the only one who's an optimist. Um, I, I don't think we'll all be skiing quite so much 50 years from now, but then we won't walk, be walking quite so much 50 years from now, some of us. Um, I, I think what is going to happen in this space is a really interesting dialogue with community managers, policymakers, and researchers about what is it that we value about biodiversity and about our natural, our natural uh, environments, and how do we work together to protect those values in the long term? And what you're looking at here is, is two, for me, real signs of optimism. One is um, a meeting which occurred on campus a few weeks ago that brought together managers, policymakers, and researchers and NGOs to start talking about really innovative, forward-thinking approaches to managing for multiple climate scenarios. And the other is um, smiling undergraduate students um, who are uh, drenched to their undies, I promise you, <laughs> and still smiling um, because they're really excited to be doing science, and they're really excited to be working in this protected and amazing um, biodiverse landscape, and um, if they can keep smiling under those conditions, I'm sure they can keep smiling um, as they try to figure out what are we going to do to protect the values of these, uh, of our biodiversity and of these environments. Thanks. Thank you for our speakers and for the fantastic presentations. I'm handing over Rob to lead the discussion. You have to fight over the, ah, my microphone is on. Can people hear me all good? Um, it's my job to moderate the panel. I'm told these people all like each other, so they're unlikely to fight. 
So if you came here to see scientists fight, you're at the wrong venue. But they've said, I don't know, I've, I've had my mind a little bit blown. I'm slightly relieved about the snow. I have plenty of questions myself, but my job is to moderate your questions. So we might throw it straight open to questions from the audience. Preferably not nine minute comments from the audience. He throws in haste. Yes, sir. There, there will be a microphone running around. Stefan's getting his exercise tonight by going up and down yeah. the stairs. Yes, uh, we've heard a lot about uh, some of the plants and, and a lot of the vertebrates, um, but we haven't heard a whole lot about the invertebrates. Um, some of the, well, these must move as well. Um, if the bugs get into the wrong place, they can be a menace. Um, if they start to disappear, the vertebrates are bugging. <laughs> Who wants to take that first? It must be you. <laughs> <laughs> um, ab absolutely. And, um, and what, what becomes really interesting is uh, invertebrates are also capable of moving much more quickly than the things that they eat. Um, and the, the phenological signals that drive developmental processes um, can be responded to in different ways, depending on life cycle and depending on whether you're an invertebrate or not. So one of the things that people need to be thinking about in the future is, is mismatches in timing of events. So for example, um, the bogong moths arrive at a different time now than they used to. Um, and so the things that rely on bogong moths as a food source are needing to either shift their life cycles or come up with alternative food sources. So in, in thinking about impacts of climate change in particular on our biodiversity, it becomes really important to think at that network scale um, and how you know, pests, pathogens, inverts, plants and animals, vertebrate animals, are going to be affected in, as a network. Any other comment or is Adrian taking it out? I have just perhaps one, and I'll defer to others up the back who actually know something about invertebrates, Pete, um, I'm an evolutionary biologist and I study how biodiversity is shaped and reshaped by climate change over thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. And I'm struck by how much flexibility there is in the system if we can remove other constraining influences like habitat fragmentation and, and pollution and so on. So there are relatively few obligate mutualisms that go long periods through evolutionary time. And species often respond to climate change in very idiosyncratic ways. So a, a host of a particular insect may move slowly, the insect may move faster, evolve faster, it's got a shorter generation time. So I think there's a lot of inherent flexibility in natural systems if we give them a chance and, and keep habitat linkages and keep ecosystems fairly healthy. And that's what the, the issue now is actually the rate of climate change. It may be unprecedented. It may also be, if we go beyond two degrees, we're moving beyond in an experience of the last million years. Uh, perhaps back, almost going back three, four million years since it was two degrees warmer. So we're going to uncharted territory. Hard to make predictions. It's probably not good. Oh, that's Any optimistic questions? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if no one's going to put their hand up. Um, you guys are, are very good at identifying a whole bunch of things that we need to be very careful of and I'm going to say worried about. And I hear some solutions out there like I'm hearing that uh, eucalyptus oil will 
fix everything. I wouldn't mind hearing a bit more about eucalyptus, eucalyptus and eucalyptus in the first instance because they sound like they're the new magical thing. Have I gotten that wrong? Well, I mean, there was interestingly, there was a, a talk earlier um, by Matt Ritter who was talking about eucalyptus in California. And he said that in, from the 1870s to the early 1900s, eucalypts were the big thing, the gold rush in California. And then people, um, it, it kind of developed into a pest. That aside, Eucalypts will have a lot of uses, and especially eucalyptus oil, biomass to biofuel conversions, eucalyptus oil as jet fuel. There are quite a few different positive uses. It's not the solution for everything, but you know, like we, we cannot work on the solution of everything, and the researchers here, we're looking at the smaller niches, and we're trying to uh, do what we can. Are, are we in danger of growing too many of them and just creating yet another problem because we've monocropped and that sort of thing? Is that <coughs> likely? disadvantages with having uh, monocultures, that's true, but um, you've you got to balance things. If you want to continue burning fossil fuel, that's probably worse than having monocultures. Uh, one of the advantages of eucalyptus oil is that what we can use for that is, is malleys. So malleys often grow in marginal land where we don't currently have food production. I'm not saying that there's no biodiversity that we would be affecting, but again, the effect on biodiversity might be less than if we continue burning fossil fuel. Is that a question, comment? Yeah. I just had a question to do with the eucalyptus oil, and I was, I thought that hydrocarbons have much the same energy density, but you're saying that eucalyptus oil is much more energy dense. It is not, yes, that's correct. It's not um, like the eucalyptus oil as you extract it from the leaf, so it has to go through a catalytic, catalytic process to be dimerized, and only certain of these oils can be used for that. But yeah, there is a big difference in the, um, in the energy density. I'm not a, a, a physicist or chemist. I, I don't understand why some have higher uh, energy values than others, but it is the case. No, not throwing the microphone at anyone's hands. Yes, ma'am. Right down the front. Ah, oh, we have a microphone here. are sort of interesting in a lot of different ways. So in, in some ways they are far more vulnerable to species going extinct. Uh, and the main way there is just because population sizes are so small, uh, if you get a, a threatening process establishing itself like a reduced um, predator like cats or foxes or whatever, establishing on an island, they can very rapidly um, you know, decimate native populations. In a, at the same time,
two sets of hands here. Well, you're right, you know, genomics and informatics are, are the beginning of the revolution, not the end. Um, certainly the computational biology here, there's a lot more to do to extract value out of the masses, massive amounts of data that are now coming. But the area I'd highlight in particular is phenotyping. So the phenotype is sort of the traits of organisms, their appearance, their physiology, their behaviour, and so forth. And we're still very much 19th century in that enterprise. I've just been up measuring lizards in the tropics and I've got my little ruler and my calipers. Uh, there's a lot of interest in automated imaging <coughs> image and smart image analysis to enhance that. Uh, and also opening that up to citizen science as well. Uh, at the other extreme, people doing experimental biology on Australian species have now got these large phenotyping platforms, sort of uh, temperature and daylight and timing control cabinets where they can do remote sensing of little uh, growing plants and look at how their chemistry is changing as well as their <coughs> leaf shape and that sort of thing. So that's, that's sort of a brave new world as well. But I think phenotyping and then connecting data uh, is uh, the big challenge that's coming. Anyone else? Uh, maybe yeah. another thing to add is uh, another sort of recent innovation is metagenomics. We've, um, you know, traditionally when you, when you want to um, sample DNA you, you know, choose your target species metagenomics you basically just grab a sample of anything, grind it all up, you don't know what's there and you let the DNA tell you what's there. Um, so I don't know if anyone has any, any more thoughts on that. That's a promising and frightening image at the same time, I have to say. <laughs> just churn through and take whatever you can. Is that going well? I mean, how close are we to doing that? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, um, I think it's still in fairly early stages. I think there was another question here first, and then up here. Thanks, uh, all great talks. Uh, can, uh, can you talk about uh, the impact of invasive species? Uh, Craig mentioned the uh, cane toads in the north, um, but what else have we seen? Uh, I think uh, Adrian also mentioned the, um, some of the invasive species moving up further into the Alps. Uh, what sort of uh, approaches are coming through to, to uh, rein things in, or whether you just embrace it to some extent and say, well, at some point they become Australian species, well, and everything's in a state of flux and we just have to, to, to live with it. Right? I, I think that's, that's absolutely spot on. And what's interesting to me, if you travel elsewhere in the world, you realise that we are particularly attuned to the issue of invasive species in Australia, in, in lots of other countries, um, they think of these new naturalized colonists as just part of the landscape much more quickly than we do. Um, certainly, <coughs> in, when, when working with colleagues in, in the mountains, this is precisely the discussion that, that they're having, is we can't keep throwing resources at keeping things out. Um, we need to, to make educated decisions 
about, about that point at which you say, okay, this thing is here to stay, there's no point in, in using our resources there. Um, but the other thing that's really quite interesting is that our native species can become our own invasive species. So as, as lower elevation or um, northern species uh, disperse into these environments, they are also going to change community compositions and, and sort of the interactions between, between organisms. So we have to almost broaden our discussion on, on those questions about what makes an invasive. Um, and then finally, there are some things that are extremely invasive now that might not be under future climate scenarios. And so people are thinking a lot about how, how do we come up with decent predictions uh, for which ones we want to focus on eradicating, which ones we don't need to worry about because they're going to disappear, and which ones we just have to accept and move on with. Anyone else want to comment on that? Deathly silence. So you're asking specifically about the IPAs? Yeah, it's been a, it's, I'm newer to this game than perhaps others in this audience, and it's been a, it's a constant learning experience of how to engage effectively. The answers very different from one place to another. So some of the IPAs are very new. They're just starting. They're relatively open to engagement, but on their terms, not our terms. Others are much more mature and have very sophisticated training capabilities. They work routinely, for example, in fire management. So one of the success of the IPA is about Wardican and Jock in uh, the Island Plateau and, and to the north. Um, they've had uh, terrific success with carbon abatement programs because they've changed their fire management regimes, moving to uh, more early season burning in a, in a GIS-driven, community-driven patchwork of early burning to suppress late-season fires. That reduces the extent of areas burnt, hence the carbon emissions. And they, make, they then get resourcing from carbon offsets from uh, energy, you know, carbon-producing companies. So that's been terrific. And I think the Ranger program in general, so there's a thing called Working on Country, and that funds um, individuals, men and women, to undertake the ecological management often in a, 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 sort of a blend of Western science and traditional practice. And that's culturally very appropriate work because they're on their country, they're responsible for it, and they're managing it, not just for themselves, but for their community and for the nation. And that has bipartisan support, but it it's needs more support. <coughs> the other thing that's been reports recently, I could go on about this forever, somebody shut up. Um, I'll get to that, don't worry, keep going. <laughs> I was actually inspired by another ANU academic, John Altman, the Centre for Aboriginal and Economic Resource something. Um, and they've done studies to, to document, quantify the social and educational and health benefits out of these ranger programs. Because in these very remote, often disadvantaged communities, these are the point of light. These are a positive thing in an otherwise very bleak landscape. More hands? Oops. Stefan is running to the back.
Can I get you to hold the microphone quite close? It's a bit hard to hear. This is better. Much of the research uh, you talked about uh, focuses on biodiversity in protected areas. But um, some of the most threatened biodiversity in Australia occurs uh, adjacent to or on um, agricultural land. And uh, is threatened uh, through fragmentation, poaching, invasive species, and so forth. What tools do you think we have in Australia to help counteract? They will rush for the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so this is that's a great question. It's of personal interest to me. I live on a, a property on the Murrumbidgee, halfway to Yass, and I just came back from the tropics on Saturday. On Sunday, my wife had me out planting trees. So I went on the ground trying to do restoration, rehabilitation, and there's actually quite a lot of programs, it's kind of diffuse, um, to help us do that. So we have community groups, we have, fortunately we have CSIRO right here with a truckload of expertise in ecological restoration and they participate in the local land care groups. So we're kind of privileged in that regard. Um, I think we have a long way to go to move beyond local seed sourcing to getting our, our plants, you know, the types of species or the populations of those species that will thrive in altered climates in 20 or 50 years. And I think that's an area where there's some online information, but most people don't yet know how to access it. But again, there's a lot of community groups that go out and get the information. And they, they'll go and beat up an expert until they get it. Um, because you know, they don't want to go to the huge effort of doing this stuff if you're putting the wrong thing in the wrong place, and so on. The biggest challenge we've had is figuring out what's our target? Is it pre-Aboriginal landscapes? Is it the Aboriginal burning management landscape? Given how long, you know, 40,000 years they've been here. So what's your target? In our view, it's sort of a, a functional, robust ecosystem that we can have both grazing and biodiversity. It's quite a challenge. Yeah, I think, well, um, I, I totally agree with, with Craig that um, community level, um, um, you know, private landholder based um, programs like Craig was describing are, are going to become more and more important. I also tend to think that um, the reserve system is, you know, for a very long time yet, going to keep being the mainstay of sort of one development that happened in South Australia well, going back a few decades now was the regional reserve system which was an attempt to and I can't say how successful it's been but it was an attempt to um, come up with a, a system that that allowed um, you know conservation to coexist with you know other uses of the land like uh, mineral exploration and, and pastoralism it was extremely controversial 
Um, I've been surprised that that, that sort of approach hasn't actually been taken up more and more in, in other states. Maybe I'll throw it into the whole panel. What would be, if you had a wish list, you know, the magical thing that would suit the work that you're doing best, the thing that would be most useful to you next? Could you say what it would be? Maybe we put you on the spot first and walk up the panel. No pressure. Um, there's, there's a lot of resources missing. Um, some of the things, like if I look back at my research of the last five years, if I would redo some of the things, like some of the recent developments, such as the drones for phenotyping, hmm. um, one of the plantations I work with has 83,000 trees, and we went, walked through there counting each single one of them two times. So with a counter, uh, nowadays we just- That was the whole five years, right? <laughs> it took four people two days, one and a half days. Wow. It was uh, 90 kilometers we walked to all together um, along the rows counting. So now that you, you would just send a drone over in the 35 degrees in the near outback, that would be much more comfortable. <laughs> You'll get fat. <laughs> um, <laughs> other things that, you know, like having change in computational infrastructure, gen genomic uh, infrastructure has been so fast it's really hard to keep up with. Mm. Um, like looking a year or two in the future to know what will come next, where to invest. Quite often uh, research institutions would spend a million dollars to buy a machine and it's outdated three months later. But still useful? No, uh, well, yeah. standing around hardly used. Uh. So if we can, you know, like see more what <coughs> the development is, we, we might not invest into the wrong thing so much. But, I mean, we can't look into, into the future, so we have to do, we're working on grant cycles, so by the time, you know, we actually get that machine, it's already two years outdated um, from the grant application till the delivery. So I think there's some problems, but there's nothing that, you know, we personally can do anything about. Yes, yeah, so no one's allowed to say fix the grant system or I need more money. That doesn't count. Those, those aren't useful. <laughs> I'm hearing drones and or grad students is what you need right now. <laughs> Any keen people? So I'm going to go on with the student thing. Um, I think what gets us out of bed early in the morning and brings us to work is the people we work with, particularly the students. So having continuing generations of students who challenge us and um, keep us on our toes and, and teach us um, the things they learn, is that's the future. Student of the future? That's yeah. uh, yeah, easy. I think, I think yeah? I've, I've, I've learned a lot from my students. So a good team of dedicated students is, is high on my wish list. Um, and just more time to get out into um, you know, places like southwestern Australia myself so I can, I can actually you know, sort of understand a bit better the, the sort of systems that I need to embrace for the way I would want to contribute. Student times, time and drones and
efficient and productive ways. I hear science communication. I have to say that though, because I'm the deputy director of the Centre for Science Communication. <laughs> you heard it without prompting that this is a great <laughs> idea. So what about um, it, this notion of citizen science seems to be slotting in quite nicely and it came up a little bit in some of your responses. How do you feel about the role of the citizen science sort of movement as it were in, the, in your kinds of work? Good, bad, indifferent, could be more, could be less? Marcel's ready to go. I think it has a great future. Um, <coughs> some of you might be aware of that uh, in 2010, um, a, a plant disease from South America arrived in Australia called myrtle rust. And um, because the project in, in New South Wales and Queensland were so underfunded, um, they, the, the most part of the research was really done by, by citizen science. They were asked the question, did you see myrtle rust? On which plant did you see it? There were apps developed. You could just put in, yes, this plant, I saw it here and here. And that gave us the overview of how fast myrtle rust was moving in Australia. So it's a fantastic uh, resource set and something that needs to be further developed into the future. The data source is reliable? Citizens as data gatherers? The most of the people who actually engage in this are highly interested and are much more likely to identify a plan correctly than I am. <laughs> you know we're recording. <laughs> My take is that it's a wonderful thing to both give people interested in environment understanding science and how it's done is just as important. But we also have to manage expectations. So there is the issue of data quality and as Carson said, many citizens are much better at natural history, identification and so on. Um, but it gets better and better if you get sort of a feedback loop going between the experts sort of training the citizen scientists, and also making the citizen science a bit competitive. You know, who's got the highest score on accuracy and so and, and, and get the kids into it. And you know, if you can make it, this thing called Quest Again, which is actually based out of Canberra, which is sort of a, a citizen science identification photography thing. And they've made it just like a, one of these horrible computer games where things kill each other and you get points and, and, and you get some table of how well you're doing compared to everyone else. And apparently it's incredibly popular. So video games not all bad. <laughs> Ish. None of their biodiversity, Google Earth, Apple something <laughs> I can hear Xbox lining up for that one. <laughs> if, the, if the community gets involved in these community projects you're talking about, there's obviously feedback that's good for you doing the research, um, but surely these people get a vested interest in doing good stuff I don't think anyone's going to argue with you here, are you? No. 
I'm just going to throw a chair over that one. I think we're getting close to time. Ah, oh, sir. What's the um, danger with the new techniques? And I've just heard about these that was a beat before you put it, that the volume of data gets in the way of asking the right questions. Oh, you can't just think about it. You have to say something now. They've all done this. You're imagining a world where we have too much data. So vast amounts of data are completely useless if you don't have a sensible question to ask. And people get their questions from all sorts of different things. Students come and ask a really cool question they never thought of. Some of the public asks you a question, God, I never thought of that. I get my own sort of um, inspiration from being in the bush and looking at organisms and environments. I think, well, how does that work? Um, why is it like that? Other people will get it from reading the literature and so forth. So any question we pose will typically only use a tiny fraction of the available data, but hopefully we can find the right data and connect it the right way to get the answer. So any of you in danger of being overwhelmed by your data? Constantly. Yeah? <laughs> so we already have that problem. Yeah, it's, um, it's very easy these days to generate massive Have any last burning questions? Still clean. Still okay. <laughs> Everyone's still pondering. 
Was there anything that any of the panelists would like to throw to sort of put the icing on the cake here? A plea, a thank you, nothing? <laughs> no gratitude and no plea. Oh, man. I think you're being like just about all of us in this room, it's probably fair to say. What, what, what would our learned panel say to that? In an optimistic way. <laughs> no pressure. They don't want to say anything. I think the conversation is getting louder and more consistent. So we still have the naysayers, but they're becoming a smaller and smaller, and I think less influential voice. I hope so too, because I don't have grandkids yet, but maybe one day I will. <laughs> and I want them to see what I see. I, I think another note of optimism is the one that I mentioned at the end of, of my talk, is that the generation that we're educating now has grown up with these issues on the table, and they have no doubt. And they're used to thinking um, broadly about how you get information and how you deal with information um, and drawing more sources together critically. So I, I feel like one of the most important things is to be empowering them, giving them the information and the tools that they need. Um, and I'm not just copying out. Um, but I, I think we are heading towards a new approach to, to solving problems in that we're educating a more interdisciplinary and broader thinking generation. I have to say when I was young, none of these issues were thought I don't think it's all doom and gloom. We've heard some good things dotted throughout these, you know, extremely pessimistic presentations. <laughs> I think we're doing, we could be doing worse. How about that? Is that a nice optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> I think on that note, yes, I'll throw it back to our chair. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.